Welcome to this February 14th edition of the Mongo Spaces. My name is Raman Yang. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be talking about debt, specifically the $2 billion notes that Kenya has to pay at the end of June. And this week's issuance of a new $1.5 billion note in order to repay part of it. Now, remember, for context, after making promises to do a buyback three times last year, there was a promise in May to do a $1 billion buyback. There was another promise late in the middle of the year where that figure was reduced to $500 million. And then at the end of the year in November, the president said, no, actually, the figure's changed again. It's $300 million. Three times the promise to make a buyback was done. Three times that promise was not fulfilled. But finally, in February 2024, the Kenyan government came to market with an offer in hand. But in the wake of this auction, an auction that, remember, got nearly $6 billion in bids. What does this tell us about the state of public finances, but also the concerns of tens of millions of taxpayers about the viability of Kenya's public debt? Hopefully you get through that topic and plenty more in the next 60 minutes. With me in this discussion, Julian Samboko. He's a business journalist at Nation Media Group, although to be fair, I'm slightly underselling his CV and his impressive range of work that he does uh, pretty much across the board. We also have Churchill Ogutu on the line with us. He's an economist uh, with IC Group. Um, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time this evening. I want to start with the basics because a lot of us are going to be hearing terms that we're not familiar with unless, of course, you're in debt markets or bonds over the next hour or so. Coupons, yields, cross-default clauses. We're going to be hearing a lot about those three phrases when you talk about the issuance of Eurobonds. So, Churchill, I want to start with you. Give us a layman's explanation of what these three terms are. Thanks, Rama, for the question. Happy to be on this call. Layman's perspective to those three terms, coupon, seals, and cross-default clauses. I think this is a question that has come out more so in the last couple of days. There's a bit of some misunderstanding about what's a coupon rate, what's a yield, and things like that. There's some context that I normally like putting these terms to. If you look at the markets, there's a bit of some correlation. If you think about commodities market, if you think about equities market, if you think about a real estate market. So you might have come across these terms, but you may not know them within the context of fixed income. So for instance, assuming that somebody has built a home with a value of 10 billion shillings, right? So that's like about $66,000. And this home, this property, which is, say, 60,000 monthly rent. So in a year, that's around 720,000 Kenya shillings rent. But if you look at the rent that you earn, ignoring the tax aspect to residential income rent, uh, so you look at the 720,000 income that as an property owner you get having rented this property over the 10 million sale or the value of the property. So that's right about 7.2%. So assuming that the property value comes to 7.2 million for simplicity's sake, but still you continue fetching a yearly rent of 720,000. So the yield comes to basically the rent that you receive in a year as a percentage of the property value. So that's 10%. So if you think about the rental income as a coupon or the amount you receive, because if you come to the fixed income world, you do receive coupons, which is paid twice a year. So if a coupon rate is say 10% on investment, so whatever investment you have, 10% you'll receive in any given year, but you should twice 5%, 5% of every six months. So that is the coupon rate. But now the yield is basically the value or the price of the bond. Because remember that once the bond has been issued, it has a value in the secondary market. So based on the value in the secondary markets, if the coupon income 
as a percentage of the price is quite high or the yield is higher than the coupon rate. Let me just take a step back. If you come to the fixed income market, some people rather than telling you the price of a bond is say this amount of, in terms of shilling or in dollars, they quote it as a percentage of yield. But what is the yield? Secondly, the yield is, is all the income that you'll get from the coupon income as a percentage of the value or, or the price of the bond. So back to the example that I said, if you have a property 10 million and you get 720K in rental income in a year, so if you do the math, 720 over 10 million, so that's 7.2%. So that is your yield. But now the price of the value keeps on changing despite the fact that the rental income keeps on remaining the same. So if you think about the rental income, that is the coupon rates in fixed income. The yield keeps on fluctuating, but whatever people talk about the yield, the flip side of that is now it's not the bond price. Right. Try to simplify it, but across markets, I think there's an example I put of a cow. The value of a cow is say 100K, but then it will be sold less than 100K or it will even be higher than 100K. But yet, there's a produce that you get. The value of the milk is what you're treating as a coupon that essentially is coming to market. Yeah, so all these markets, there are some similarities. It's only that within the bonds market, things tend to be a bit blood. Fair enough. Julian, I want to come to you. Across default clauses, that's a part of issuing these zero bonds that often doesn't get a lot of attention. But it's especially important, I think, in the, in the context of the conversation that we're having, because we do have plenty of euro bonds that are still coming due. There are notes due in 2027, 2028, and further out in 2031, 32 as well. What's the name and explanation for what a cross-default clause is and why should we care about it? Roman, thank you so much for this opportunity and uh, good evening to everyone. I'm battling a spot but we shall navigate this. Think about it this way. If I owe Rama 100,000 shillings and I owe Churchill 100,000 shillings and I have a due date with Rama to pay him by the 30th of June 2024 and that date comes and I fail to honor that obligation. Churchill starts to get worried. Churchill gets increasingly worried because one, I owe him a much larger sum and two, the runway left between June 30th and the time I owe Churchill is of course thinning out. So the way debt contracts are structured is to define events of default. The first one, of course, is straightforward non-payment. That's the most common one. The second one is if you breach a moratorium. So we say if we gave you some window period within which you should update this and there was a grace period factor in, if you default, if you fail to honor that, then we shall throw you into the non-performing category. But here's a case where the provision always includes an instance where if I default on one particular facility, then it accelerates the fact that I have technically defaulted on a few other instruments, which typically are similarly structured, governed with the same regulatory framework. And that is why the discussion around cross-default, especially when we went into the COVID period and following which we had the Russia Ukraine, of course, we got into a very tightened environment. Cross-default became a very sticky discussion. Yeah. So to put it mildly, or rather to bring it to our layman audience once again, to use the example that you gave, I've lent you 100,000 shillings and Churchill is lent you 200,000 shillings. So even if, for the sake of argument, you might still be able to service that 100,000 shillings that you owe me, right? But you're not able to service Churchill's 200,000 shilling loan. But even in that context, defaulting on his loan essentially means that I can come to you and say, hey, I need my 100K right now. That's essentially what a cross-default clause would trigger. Precisely. That's exactly what it triggers. And the idea behind it is we always talk about the contagion effect of debt. And the, the whole thinking is if you are unable to service one, then why would another creditor start believing that you, when the time comes, you will be able to service theirs? And therefore, you almost get into an omnibus conversation around restructuring your obligations. So to put it uh, straightforward, that's what uh, cross-default looks like. 
And if anyone has ventured to read the latest offer document for the new note and the buyback, it is in section 10, which breaks down a number of instances under which cross default and cross default of course comes in. And I think one which Kenyans need to pay attention to is the one where you cease being an IMF member or you cease being eligible for IMF resources. Because many times I think we take IMF for granted. And that there's a whole other conversation that will be had about IMF cash coming through, but we'll get to that in a moment. But let's get to where we are now, right? It's been a very heavy week in the market. The Kenyan government came out and said, look, we're looking to raise one euro bond, a new note that's due in 2031 in order to partially fund a buyback of the 2 billion that's due at the end of June. The data I'm working with here is the 300 million figure that the president had in November. Assuming that is used for the buyback, that still leaves us with what? $1.2 billion, give or take about 180, 190 billion shillings to offset what we would have borrowed in the domestic market. But is that one of the scenarios that could happen here? Or is it more prudent at this point, Churchill, for the government to simply turn around and say, if we have this one and a half billion now, we might as well just turn around and buy back a similar amount of the 2024 note is, do you think there's demand for that, for buyback of that scale? So just to give a flavor of this collectively is called a liability management operation. There are two legs to it. The first is now the tender offer. So basically the government is approaching the current holders of uh, this euro bond that is maturing in June and uh, giving them an opportunity or rather opportunity wants to buy back portion of that euro bond 2024. But this euro bond 2024 is now funded by now the second leg of this liability management operation. And that's now the new one that was issued on Monday. So the indication from the prospectus was that they were looking at around $1 billion, correct? And they ended up now selling at uh, $1.5 billion. So that's pretty much the, uh, the amount that, okay, we can argue that it was quite lower than that, but uh, let's just use the $1.5 billion. So that is actually the maximum tender offer. They didn't specify on the tender offer document what amount want now to conduct the buyback on. So it was pretty much left in vague. But if you go to the, there's another document that they shared that the maximum size that they'll be able to issue from the new Eurobond, that will now become the maximum tender offer. So that's the maximum uh, that they can now be able to accept. So the tender offer is closing later today, 5 p.m. New York time. So that should be 1 a.m. Kenyan time, if I'm not wrong. We'll be able to see the results of uh, guys who are able to accept this tender offer. Uh, looking at the terms, the concern previously was that will Kenya be able to pay its Eurobond when it comes due? So basically, if I give GOK my $200,000, that's the minimum investment, $200,000, Will GOK now pay me back $200,000? So that was pretty much on everyone's concern. And because that concern was still there, so the price of the euro bond was discounted. The yield was trading at 14%, at some point 20%, whenever these bouts of concern became elevated. If I may just jump in there briefly, and, and I want you to explain perception problem in a bit more detail for our audience, because... And here's the background context of why I'm asking this question. As of Q4 last year, right, the sequencing that had been given by the finance ministry, by the central bank was, look, we're getting X amount from the International Monetary Fund, right? Roughly $400, $500 million by the end of 2023 and roughly a similar amount at the end of June 24. Then you can add in another $750 million, $1 billion coming from the World Bank somewhere in the second quarter of 2022. And their argument was that we'd essentially do a switch. We take this cheaper, longer-term concessional debt from the IMF and the World Bank and turn around and use that to settle the 2024 bond. Alternatively, if that doesn't work, if that money doesn't come through or there's a delay in some instances, we can essentially just dip into reserves 
take two billion out of that, settle it. Why weren't those seen as credible alternatives to settling the 2024 bond? That still beats me. And I remember even a day before the standard offer document came out on Wednesday, that was on Tuesday. That was on the back of the Benin coming to the market, issuing the $750 million. At that point, the yields for this Kenya 2024 was around 14%. So I was of the opinion that it might be a long ride for Kenya now to tap the international market at this point in time. And lo and behold, they shock us the following day with that tender offer. I was one of the people who are shocked by the turn of events uh, that Kenya now pretty much ignored all this multilateral financing and now opted to tap the international market. So there are two scenarios that are coming at play, uh, if you ask me at this point, because uh, a lot of things are still hanging up in the clouds. Uh, one is that we could say uh, potential, probably one of the multilateral lenders, some of the disbursement might not be forthcoming. They have penciled in $1.5 billion coming from the World Bank. That's a development policy financing by March or April, they're about. The IMF, they did an upsizing on the loan. So the numbers that we had as we started the fiscal year ending Ju June 2024, we serviced the numbers that have come out after the upsizing, seen a higher amount that is coming in from the IMF. So what this suggests to me, like it's a bit of a reallocation rather than tapping into the multilateral lending, if at all they may backtrack now that they've received money, it could be that either the World Bank, I'm just adding a guess, may not be forthcoming because you haven't seen even much details around progress on, uh, from the uh, World Bank DPO as we speak right now. The other thing is that they might as well as continue with the tangent that they started with. They still continue accumulating the multilateral lending funds, the IMF, the World Bank, development policy financing, and also the Trade Development Bank syndicated loan. But all this will now go to show up the FX reserves. The other concern, even post June 2024, even in the event that we are supposed to get the monies from the multilateral lenders and settle this euro bond, will still be below the statutory four months of import cover. But at we speak now, if they still pursue getting the funds from the multilateral lenders, it will still continue showing up the FX reserves. Just right. give ample cover from the next fiscal year rather than now contending with lower effects reserves requirement even after settling the June 2024 maturity. Just before I come to you, Julius, I just want to remind our audience, um, please leave your comments and your questions for the broad range of people that we're going to be talking to over the next 40 or so minutes in response to the tweet on Mungo Capital's account. We'll certainly be watching that and trying to attend to all the questions that you have. Julian, I wanted to get into the, ta the, the second leg of the question you asked Churchill around uh, why couldn't we just go to the multilateral bucket loads of financing we've received anyway. We are in fiscal flux and fiscal flux both internally as a country and externally. So when I sat down with the governor of the Central Bank of Kenya on the 5th of December following the Jumbo rate hike, he told me we we're expecting $500 billion from TDB by the third week of deck. It never happened. And at least the amount that came was uh, a lot less than was expected. Domestically, you might recall it when we started FY2024, we had a domestic borrowing target slightly north of 500 billion shillings. Shortly, it was revised downwards to 316, then again taken down to 305 before being bumped up again to 411 thereabout. And that tells you we were in a position where we are not certain about the outturns of both external financing and domestic financing. So if you look at the way Kenya has played around the latest Eurobond note, we have chosen liquidity over cost. And that 
brings the issue of trust. If you made the offer document, we were targeting a billion dollars. We went for 1.5 billion. And that tells you there's a question or a sense in which we are not certain as to whether as a country, and this is my own opinion, not anyone else's, we might not get to the end of this IMF program having hit the targets. Because remember, the disbursements are principally pegged on you actualizing agreements, the structural benchmarks, et cetera. All things like revenue targets, you have to make certain reforms with SOEs. I know Kenya Airways, for example, and Kenya power reforms are a big part of that. Passing certain legislations, things like the treasury single accounts. Those are the targets that we're talking about, right? Absolutely, sir. And one of the things which stands out is that the extension of Kenya's program to April 2025, if you read the fifth review report, was largely contingent upon the fact that we were not realizing the targets as fast as was required, especially around the restructuring of SOEs and tax revenue targets. Now, those are very sticky issues because there's a social cost or political consequences to how you approach them. And that is why, whereas you might have bucket loads of multilateral financing and we thank God that they are cheap, you always want to diversify your pool just in case the IMF has to tap out at some point. Thank you. Just to buttress the arguments that both of you have made, Mark Boland of Red Intelligence, a former colleague of mine over at Bloomberg, actually had a really interesting note after we started to get the data on the performance of the new notes, the one due in 2031. And he said, and I'm quoting him here, given the fact that Kenya's interest costs are around 5.7% of GDP, the most urgent risk factor is not locking in high eurobond yields, but to borrow more in the domestic market at the current high rates. And remember, we've just seen the results of the IFP, the infrastructure bond that just came out about two hours ago. We had a flood of money coming in. The Kenyan government wanted to borrow 70 billion shillings. They actually managed to raise 288 billion, 4x of that, and they were paying a coupon rate of over 18%. That's an eye-watering number. Fantastic if you're on the lending side. If you're on the borrowing side, not so much. It's going to be pretty painful. And this is the, the, the kicker in Mark Boland's argument. Waiting for lower rates to become available in the eurobond market may well have risked a scenario where market access lips away again, forcing more borrowing in the domestic market, which right now is extraordinarily expensive. You lend government money for a year and they're essentially going to pay you back at 16%. Julian Churchill, what do you make of that position? Maybe if I could just go before uh, Churchill does. I was actually just having a chat with uh, a friend of mine and I told him, look, if you look at the outside of the IFB and you do the conversion on today's exchange rate, we have essentially raised $1.8 billion. Those are the bids we received, just to correct that. And that tells you something about the sort of capacity that exists domestically. I should qualify at the right price. And GOK, of course is in a position where it is weighing the question of FX risk. Now, we have seen some very unusual behavior around the case lately, but we don't want to rule out the fact that FX risk is a huge factor, especially when you come to our debt obligations. And maybe now, let me just give it to Churchill. Churchill, over to you. Julian, you're on the right track. So I'll just continue your point you're trying to bring. But I think the, it's, there's some trade-offs to be made. Even if you look at the domestic market, the longer you can go, you're looking at some, somewhat of a weighted average of less than six years. So you can say that on the domestic market because of the fact that the interest rates in the domestic market have developed quite drastically. If you look at T-bills, starting last year, late 2022, we are looking at single-digit levels, 9% at the 364. 7%, 8% they about, but we right now we're looking at 16%. So that also tells you that it's quite costly getting into the domestic markets. And with 
IFBs and what has happened even over the last eight or so months in the current fiscal year, the government has been below its borrowing target. So we're looking at something in the order of 118 billion shillings post the supplementary one budget that was passed in October. They need to have raised within the current financial year. But as they keep on borrowing at the short end of the yield curve or basically borrowing short bonds or short-term bonds and also the T-bills, there's much that you can get T-bills pretty much are for cash management. So you are actually looking at the borrowing from short-term bonds. So the trade-off is how sustainable is it continuing borrowing for high rates short-term because it introduced refinancing risks to five, three fiscal years down the line, five fiscal years down the line, you'll still be contending with outside maturities. When you look at the IFBs, which tends to be outliers, I think because of the momentum even before the IFBs was showing that there could be performance or the kind of outsized bids that you've seen. For one, the government was behind its borrowing targets and that speaks that they were in a more desperate position. And right now, I think just hearing people out, there was some increased offshore appetite towards this particular IFB. This IFB, the still started even way before the Eurobond and all this latest development came in. And it could also be on the back of, we have had cumulative three percentage point increase in our CBR. So basically just to attract the foreign inflows. So that's too much whetted the appetite for the infrastructure bond sale that closed out today. But already we can see that the government is at almost closing its domestic target in the current fiscal year. So what that means that probably in the next four months as we head to the end of fiscal year, we may see a scope for interest rates starting to trend lower because the government may not be that desperate. So there's a case that probably they should have waited for this IFB to close to look at the results and then probably give them some flexibility or so that they can I'll be able to focus on the domestic market borrowing rather than getting expensively from the Eurobond market. I think there's some trade-offs that the government have to consider. This comes back down to that question of, do you actually act on on commitments to lend, which have not translated into cash already, or do you actually act on the basis of the cash that you actually have in hand at the moment? I want to go back to the pricing question. I know the yield on this was somewhere in the region of 10, 10 and a bit percent, but I'm going to use a coupon rate just as, as a reference point here. And I had a very interesting conversation on this. It was early in the day because the, the concerns around Kenya's debt, our ability to service debt, this has been an ongoing conversation in 2023 and even before that. And one of the things that this person was having this conversation with pointed out was that, look, if you look at the spread between where 10-year treasuries were in 2014 when we issued this euro bond and where they are now, the one uh, this 2031 note versus where 10-year treasuries are at the moment. Coupon rate on that, I believe, is around 4%. The spread is roughly the same. It's around 500, 600 basis points. So on that basis, we really should have been surprised with the price that we got for this money, ignoring the fact that at this level, if you're borrowing at double digits, to some extent, some will look at that and see, oh my God, these guys are in really serious trouble. They need cash. But the price shouldn't have been a surprise, should it? I think the price was certainly not a surprise. Actually, I was a little taken aback by the comments I saw online. And all it took for one to do was actually to read the offer circular, which was distributed across because the undertones, even forget about where the macros globally are standing, the undertones were really laden on the risks to the downside as far as Kenya is concerned whether it is inability to meet revenue targets, whether it is proposals like the social health insurance fund and the implications they have on the exchequer, even the concern around potentially 
another frontier market going to default right as we were navigating this. This issuance and buyback was quite outsized and therefore I was not surprised by it. There are many who thought that uh, given that we had seen almost what we could call favorable pricing by Benin and uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Kenya should have been playing in the same range. I think differently. Just look at the fundamentals of economies very different. But I want to mention something, Rama, which actually has been largely skewed on falling behind targets on domestic debt. We are equally falling behind targets on tax revenue. If you look at Q1, FY2324, we've missed our target by about 79 billion shillings. I don't know how many of us have noticed, but KRA has not released HY numbers, which is very odd because we are actually in Seb. Normally comes around the third week of Jan. I think it speaks volumes and just tells us the kind of situation we are in. And therefore, when you go to market, and now going back to the pricing question, and the market understands, one, you are desperate, two, you have no leverage. We will take anything that comes because, as I said earlier, you are opting for liquidity of the cost. Definite pricing will be crazy. I'm going to bring in my third speaker in a moment, uh, but I want to put a, uh, a question to, to you, Julians and, and Churchill. And again, this is being argued from a very layman's perspective, right? If you're at a situation where you're willing to accept money that's this expensive, both in your domestic markets, you're taking an IFB of 18.5%, you're borrowing at 9.75%, basically 10%. In dollar markets as well. The implication, one reading of that, given everything we've discussed, tax revenues are essentially not performing well. They're well below target. And you're also starting to glean from some of the company results that are coming out. Look at EABL, for example, reporting the half-year numbers, 22% fall in, in, in net earnings year on year. The implication that some may read into this is come July, when the 2024 Finance Act is introduced, we're going to see extra taxes, aren't we? Probably that's my pet topic. Do I go before Churchill or I allow him to go first? <laughs> well, Churchill first and then, and then you can cover in Julian. Churchill, over. I'll let Julian handle that as I chime in on the timing on the previous question. I know taxes is now Julian's bread and butter. So if you look at the issue around the pricing, because there are a number of ways you can look at it. And first, just to bring everyone on board, there's a bit of some misunderstanding. Unlike the Kenyan auction market whereby bids or the competitive people place the amount of money that they would want to invest vis-a-vis and also the yield or the price that they want to buy it at. With the Eurobond market, it's a bit different because it's a bit of some book building. So basically, we had the lead manager, City and Standard Bank coming on board. And obviously, there was a bit of some market sounding whereby they already had an indication of where the investors wanted to price or the yield that the investors wanted if their Kenya was going to the international market. So when we saw the fact that initially they started at 11%, so this is just something that a new offering by Kenya is coming on the table. We would like to initially price it at 11%. So basically it's a bait because 11% yield, it's looking at it, you'll pay cheap but you'll get more in terms of the return from an investor perspective. So that is the quote-unquote clickbait for investors. And that speaks to the demand that we saw $6 billion. But ultimately, based on that, now the lead managers will now go back to the investors and revise lower the yield from 11%. It came to 10.625%. And then eventually it came to 10 to 75%. At this point is when now they had to put a coupon rate of 9.75%. But just the thinking behind the 9.75%. Look at the previous issuers, Ivory Coast 2038, it had issued 2037 bond and 2033 sustainability bond. The coupon rate on the 2037 bond was slightly above 8%. Benin issued a euro bond last week with a coupon rate of 7.96%, surprisingly lower than 
Benin's, despite the fact that Ivory Coast has a slightly better rating than Benin. So there are these mechanisms that come into play and based on the coupon rate and also the yield. So people, because you are issuing a debt in dollars, so obviously you need to anchor it with a benchmark U.S. Treasury bond. So that now speaks to the question that you mentioned about uh, one of the investors that uh, the spread that was issued in 2014 is pretty much the same spread that is being issued right now. If you compare an equivalent U.S. Treasury, who's around 4%, this is a U.S. Treasury whose maturity is around 20-31 or slightly lower. And then you put spread of around 5% to 6%. You get a coupon rate and also a yield. So, so from that perspective, it is not surprising. Expecting a coupon rate of slightly be, uh, of between nine point nine percent to nine point five percent, and a yield of between five nine point seven five percent, but uh, the markets price it where it was. So that just to bring into context the issue around the pricing. So let me just leave Julius to run with this pet project. Yeah, it says in in twenty twenty three, businesses are complaining, households are complaining. Should we expect more pain come? June and July. Thanks, Rama. Two things. I've been told, uh, first, I've been told my Twitter handle is a stress generator for Kenyans, so I'm trying to tone down on the taxation conversations. But that said, the two documents which I think we all need to go through. One is the budget review and outlook paper, which came out sometime late last year, and the second one is the IMF staff report. The BROP did two very important things, or signaled us on two important things. Expenditure for the FY2425, which starts in July this year, was revised marginally downwards from 4.25 trillion to 4.19 trillion. But revenue projection was revised upward from 3.41 trillion to 3.46 trillion and largely being skewed towards ordinary revenue, which is your typical taxes. If you read the IMF report, it suggests that over the next three financial years, every finance bill should be able to raise about 320 billion cold shillings. Now, why this is ambitious is because if you go back historically, the average finance bill raises about 200 billion shillings. If you really stretch it, about 220 billion shillings like Finance Act 2023. That tells you there is a lot that's coming our way. And now another document, which is important here, is the medium-term revenue strategy, because what it does is to give a sight of what you can expect in the finance bill 2024. One of the things which we know for sure, the motor vehicle circulation tax is coming. It's already captured there. We know that minimum tax, which was came in via Finance Act 2020, was thrown out because of being unconstitutional. It is being reworked to be brought back. We can have a conversation about how the structure is likely to, to pan out. Presumptive tax, which was designed to net in all the small businesses which are not within carers radar, is coming back. You might want to remember it came passed in Finance Act 2018. It just crumbled. And the tracking of all imports into the country via an introduction of withholding tax all imports is also earmarked for Finance Act or Finance Bill 2024. These are just the high-level things. If you read that document and you remember how much Kenyans debated Finance Act 23, you shudder at how much we will debate Finance Act and Finance Bill 2024. So just to put it into perspective, I think there's a lot coming our way. We'll get back to the taxes question. And frankly, I think we'll probably have to organize another space to have an entirely different debate around tax policy moving forward. But I want to bring in Dixon Magetcha. He's been a fantastic commentator on public debt issues, ethics issues in our part of the world. But Dixon, I want to bring a specific question to you that has been asked uh, in response to the tweet. This is from Kip underscore Maiwa. My question is on the pricing of the Eurobond. Could you shed some light on why the coupon is a fixed rate and it's not pegged on the secured overnight financing rate? Essentially, that's the sort of benchmark rate that replaced LIBOR. Is it sovereign standard practice or who decide? Asking this because it could end up with a lower rate later as rates drop, 
if the coupon rate was essentially set up such that it was based on the secured overnight finance rate plus a certain spread rather than being a fixed rate. Dixon, over to you. Hello. The question of issuing a variable or fronting late in this particular instance would be the fact that you're trying to lengthen your duration, number one. You're trying to surround market uncertainty uh, in the sense that if interest were, were to stay up, that would increase the cost of financing. But also, from an investor point of view, they might be looking to fix the spread over a benchmark instrument that will allow them to match the risk immediately and move on. You could ideally say it might make sense to issue a floating instrument because uh, if you expect interest to come down over time, then that would lower your cost. But for most sovereigns I've seen, I think the common practice is always to issue a fixed tenor on a, on, on a fixed coupon as opposed to a floating rate. Again, it's uh, debatable. Uh, if you think yields have topped out, it will make sense to issue a floating rate, then you can always then lock down gains as they come lower. But maybe there was an update for that, or maybe the lead arrangers felt this is what they've sold best. I remember the other speakers have said, we are not in the best of situations. Even though we wanted to issue below 10%, which was one of the key metrics we wanted to do. And that explains why we went for lower coupons. And again, the issue is that we are trying to manage the, the amount of payments that we are doing for the next X number of years to have a certainty on the coupon amounts. And you want those to be below 10%. So I guess maybe that was what could have sold. But uh, you're right in the sense that is always an option to me. As a trader, is always sensible to think of what's the next direction of interest rates. If I think it's lower, then I would issue a floating instrument that then uh, when interest has come down, I'm able to then swap that from a fixed to do a cross-currency swap to swap the interest rate from a fixed to floating at a lower rate. The flip side of that argument would be, you know, if you think about but, if we issued, for example, the 2014 one at, based on LIBOR at the time, would it necessarily yes. happen that? a cheaper thing was to have issued then versus today? Yeah, so it's a matter of sanity. I think... We have to look at these issues as not issued at the best of ideal of circumstances. And there seems to be a lot of uncertainty of how much of the sort of planned development organizations and IMF funding and the, and the World Bank DPO will get and when we'll get it, whether it will be in time for June. And another point I think uh, that looks important, especially at looking at why we paid the IFB today, it feels like the government has done all the heavy lifting that they could. They have a hike interest rate. They've allowed the currency to adjust. They've run a tight ship relatively. If you're thinking about the fiscal spending side of things, I think if you look at the budget, developer spending as of December was just 70 billion. At some point, running that kind of a ship does hurt the economy because you're increasing interest rates for the streets. You remain rated by some of the rating agencies like Moody's who have you at B3 or negative rating. And the reason they give that is that you have no market access, both domestic and foreign. You've also run out of the runway in terms of inflation metrics. You're the point where... If, if you allow for the adjustment of the currency, for example, and interest rates, you hurt both the inflation side with higher commodity prices and on the interest rate side, you'll lock in more government debt at higher costs. And also, of course, you have a lot more guys defaulting on debt. But the given all the metrics that you've mentioned, mm -hmm. this looks like the government is trying to have its lunch and eat it. Because on one hand, it's done all these things that essentially suppress demand. If you look at what's uh, the effect of the, the weaker shilling, just looking at 2023 numbers, demand has been suppressed. NPLs have gone up because rates are going up. They fairly stick at around 15%. And yet we look at the budget documents that Julius is talking about, and they're penciling in these outrageous double-digit increases in income taxes and consumption taxes. And you're like, hang on, but these two numbers do not make sense. If the economy is stagnant at best, it doesn't make sense, therefore, to then turn around and say, well, actually, I'm pegging my spending plan for the next fiscal year on a 15% revenue increase. Which is why then that explains why they, they do the what they've done the last two days. Number one. 
you've gone and issued your bond, you've taken out, uh, you've risked the, the offshore investors who are scared about uh, your default. Ideally, this should have you at least uh, move back to at least neutral, if not positive outlook by the rating agencies because you remove the narrative that you don't have any market access. On the IFB side, you could weigh paying up interest rates for this particular one option makes you meet the annual borrowing target or gets you very close to the annual borrowing target, which then means that for the next uh, X number of months, you could now use that to dial in duration at much lower interest rate. If they turn around and, and this board them and say, we've got to get the 1.5 billion from the DPO, the MF7 review will give us another $1 billion. Plus, we will get some more bits and bobs here from the other development organizations. So another $3 billion. You add that to the $1.5 billion we just issued for the Eurobond. And then you add the $1.8 billion that we'll get from this IFB issue. Clearly, I think, I don't know, I've not uh, plotted in the numbers, but it feels like we might have met the annual borrowing target or we're very close to it. In which case, then now, from now on to the next four months, if there's no new issuance, obviously, then the yield curve will have to come down substantially. If the yield curve was to fall down, but fall closer to where the policy rate is, which is around 13%, that would be a massive saving in terms of cost of debt. And obviously then the economy might pick up because of that. Obviously then we have this huge influx of current offshore investor flows coming to the economy. And I think in the next few days, uh, we're going to see a huge, huge move on the currency side. That actually was my next question, because looking at what has happened on, on the currency trading side, mid, I believe 22nd of January, dollar shilling rates in the FX market was closer to 161, which is slightly higher than that in the retail market, 164, 165 if you actually wanted to buy it. But now we've seen this massive move in the other direction. And I know we've had this discussion offline a little earlier, and my argument was, look, this is a market essentially doing what the market does. If you have a flood of capital coming in, when someone's saying you're going to borrow at 19, 18%, obviously dollar demand goes down, Kenny shilling demand goes up, the price adjusts accordingly. But I guess the question I would ask you is, how sustainable is this, at least in the medium term? In the context of the macros January back in December, and, and you've laid them now very well, you have high inflation, which has impacted household spending. You have high tax rates, which again has screened for demand. You have a currency that has gone up 20, 25%, which has again increased the cost of imports and reduced imports demand. You have exports that are slightly higher. You have a bit of import attrition, which we can't really quantify but uh, you could see there's more consumption of some domestic goods. Then you have the current account deficit coming down to 3.9% from 5.6%. And at the same time, you have bank lending going to double digits. And then more importantly, the swap funding cost for Kenya to dollar had gone to, I think, 20, 23% uh, on the offer side. The bid was around 18, 20%. And, and then you combine all these together. Oh, and then we had this huge increase in uh, net foreign assets in the banking sector. I think around $4 billion, which tells you that everyone is accumulating dollars. They're accumulating dollars and they're funding them at 22%. And uh, the faster the currency goes, the faster the accumulation is happening as our uh, import will, coll will collapse further. Obviously, at some point, it hit an inflection point. And the inflection point was hit sometime in December. But the currency kept going, uh, and I suspect some of the brighter folks out there on the offshore side looked at the real interest rates we were paying. You're paying 18% versus inflation of 6%. Just by doing that and anchoring your fiscal deficit, there is no way the currency will keep going. It's one plus one equals two. So ultimately, that was bound to sort of come back. So would that be sustainable? Again, it all depends on what happens in a few areas. Number one would be the fiscal. If we continue running huge deficits, again, that will now put pressure on the spending side. 
Remember, part of the issues that we, that we, we had uh, from the public's expenditure was that most of it was going to infrastructure, which will then lead to a lot of uh, imported capital goods and machinery and all those things to make all those things. That bit of demand has not been there in the economy. If you, again, lower interest rates, you do stimulate consumer demand. And maybe some people who have chosen not to import at 160 might look at the market at uh, lower rates and decide, okay, it makes a bit more sense to, for me to import now. At the same time, maybe the exporters who are getting fresh markets and fresh impetus to sell because they were getting a much higher rate for their goods. All of a sudden that turns around and they're earning 15-20% lower. They might not have the same sort of uh, mathematical equations to, to make sense on that side, which is why the equilibrium comes in. So ideally, the currency should adjust to a point where both sides, both the importer and the exporter sides are out. But however, let's agree that market moves of sentiments more than... More than fundamentals. Uh, yeah, more than fundamentals. Why it was 65, that was mostly sentiments. Why it would go much lower again would be sentiment. What would determine where it settles, I think, might be central banking. For instance, to me, I think there's a case for them to start building reserves at some point as they see fit. At one level, they will that be? We don't know. I decide it's at 100, it's at 120, 140, whatever it is. We don't know how far the currency will go. But what we do know is that at least the pressure for now has eased. That could last for a few months. Again, I think the offshore investors who are looking at Kenya yesterday, for that, even if the currency be lower where it is, I think they still value in, in some of the assets that we have. Our equity markets are that beaten to the ground. The fresh book ratios there look really enticing. Yeah, yeah they're uh, very low. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of dead cheap assets. And, and, and think about the sequence. Think about the sequence of investment. Most of those stocks would be lower because of the discounting factor because of the high interest rate. If the low interest rates were to come down, then obviously the valuations uh, that you think about the equity side start making sense. In which case then now you have a second round of offshore investors who will be looking for equities after the first or will be looking for fixed income. Why, as you might think, the currency could turn, it might go down and just stay at a neutral level for... Just to interrupt for a bit, because I need to get back to some of the questions that we're getting on Twitter. There's an interesting one here from Barrett Greenback, and it's a straightforward numbers question. Are we going to be paying less? Now, that we're assuming we do this switch, right, because the tender offers still haven't closed, at least they're going to close in the next couple of hours uh, for the 2024 buyback. But essentially what Barrett Greenback is asking is, will we be paying less on an annual basis on this new euro bond compared to what we were paying before? Churchill, do you want to take that? Oh, yeah, thanks. So the current euro bond that is maturing in June, though, so the outstanding amount is $2 billion. We've been paying 6.875%. So you're looking at a cost of $137.5 million on an annual basis or any given fiscal year. So now, assuming that we are able to switch $1.5 billion, so that's the maximum that they can now be able to buy back out of this Eurobond 2024, so $1.5 billion at a cost of 9.75% in any given year. So you're looking at slightly $146.25 million. So there's a net increase of $8.75 million in terms of the debt servicing costs. If you look at just the external debt servicing for the Eurobonds, there are some six outstanding Eurobonds. So once we are done with this 2024, so we'll still remain with six codes. We added one, but subtract one from July. So the question is, unlike the Eurobond that is maturing in June, this one is amortizing. So it has an amortizing feature by amortizing. Rather than that $1.5 billion maturing in 2031, which is the final maturity, it's staggered across three. Uh, from 2029 all the way to 2031, we'll be seeing somewhat upwards of $500 million. But this is all I'm assuming that $1.5 billion is switched into this. So the outlier years from 2020, 2030 and 2031, we'll see a significant lower amount in terms of the external debt servicing uh, costs just because of this amortizing feature. I also want to 
fire off another question that's come in from the audience. This one's from Ronald Wadi, but I want to build on it. Essentially, what he's asking here is he's looking at the sort of euro bonds that we've issued, and more often than not, there's somewhere between that five to 10 year range. And he's asking, couldn't the government consider borrowing on a much longer tenor, 20 or 25 years? But the reason I want to build on that question is this, and this goes to, to you, Dixon and Churchill. Is there actually demand, though, for euro bonds debt of that tenor, 20 year euro bonds debt from frontier markets? like ours. Dixon first and then Churchill. Oh, I think uh, timing is important. I think uh, if you had issued it when, when yields were at 0%, you would have found takers. I don't know which country I think issued uh, a 50-year bond and someone else issued, I think, a 100-year bond because we had 18 trillion of global yields, central banks, uh, sovereign yields, uh, trading in negative yields at that point in time. And really, there was no demand at all. So I think at that point, would have had adventurous guys who are looking to invest in, into these long-term bonds. So for us, I think the issue we're considering is always the cost. So you can issue issue, but you'll get closer to 12%. And like we've said, this seems to be a huge aversion to issue above 10%. Most of the time, what they do is that you look at where is the 10% angle and then you work backwards, which then I will squeeze into that. And you find that when yields in the US are 4%, that limits you. And then you're you know, rated B and B3. Then that sort of puts a ceiling on how low you can go. And then you affect that seven-year tenor. Why we didn't issue a seven-year straight bullet tenor again is because we had to amortize. When you amortize, you reduce the average duration or weighted duration of that particular bond. So whilst we say in the seven years, luckily not seven years because you're going to amortize, you're going to pay some of it early. Why would you do that again? Is because if you issue the seven years fixed, you're going to have a higher yield. So you're being forced to issue a slightly shorter than a bond because of the fact that you have to pay up a lot more if you're going to be longer term. Let me chime in before Julian's. Currently, there are six outstanding euro bonds that have been issued by GOK. The longest is the 30 year, which was issued in 2018. So 2018, and it's maturing in 2048. It was outstanding amount of $1 billion. And then the coupon of that paper is around 8.25%. By the time it is being issued, the U.S. yields are quite lower as compared to where they are right now. The spread on a comparative U.S. Treasury bond was around 500 basis points, or rather 5% over and above a comparable U.S. Treasury. So that's now the math that was worked at that point in time and took us to 8.25% for a 30-year bond. We've seen some Issuers, I think Benin has a 2052 maturity. At some point, Ghana has had a 2061, but it's slated for restructuring. So you've seen some scope of longer tenor issuers, but I, I don't think we may see those longer tenor issuers, not unless now starting to see global interest rates starting to come lower, that now allows flexibility for African or even emerging market issuers to issue longer tenor issues. And of course, that's the, the timing of those rate cuts ultimately is one of the big billion dollar questions that we're all bouncing around in newsrooms and trading desks around the world. We are smack on 2100 hours at the moment, taking 100 GMT. So it's time for me to actually start to wrap this up. I'm going to take one specific question that has been asked on the timeline. Dennis Kader was asking if the buyback for the 2024 Eurobond has been successful. The short answer, Dennis, is that we're waiting for the results of that tender offer, which should be coming in around 1 a.m., 2 a.m in the morning tomorrow because the offer essentially closes at 5 p.m. New York time today. So we don't have any hard numbers for you yet, but you can expect to see that certainly hitting the headlines on Thursday and later on Friday. And in reference to some of the much longer dated notes that Dixon was talking about a little earlier, just for reference, back in 2017, Argentina, of all countries, managed to come to the markets and somehow convince bondholders to buy a century-long note. They were paying a coupon rate back then of, I think, 72 
7.1, So it can be done, but of course, remember, this is Argentina. They actually ended up having to default and restructure that note barely three years later. I want to give a big thank you to all the speakers that we had on the panels tonight. Julian Zamboko from NMG, Dixon Magetchen, of course, Churchill Ogutu. Hopefully you've covered many of the questions that you've all had in this session. I know we've not exhausted the topic, but we'll certainly keep on top of the, the debt saga of Kenya over the next months to come. Thank you very much. Have a marvelous Valentine's Day and thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, folks. Thanks.